illuminating facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. All right, let's get after it. It's The Kale Clark Show. I am pumped. I'm ready to go, and I hope you are too. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. We're going to get you over that hump. We're going to go straight downhill. We're going to catch some momentum and coast into the rest of the week. It is... (laughs) Time for the show. It's February the 21st, 2024. And you probably, you might have seen the promo that we put out for this uh, on social media for this program. Does God need to go to confession? Well, obviously he doesn't. I was trying to be clever there, trying to catch people's attention. A little market, my mark, trying to put my marketing degree to good use, trying to hook you in. Today's reading from the book of Jonah, one of my favorite books in the Bible, maybe yours too talks about God, quote-unquote, repenting of the evil that he had threatened. Now, can can God actually repent? Does he actually do evil? Can he threaten evil? Of course not. But we're going to explain what all of this means, plus more faith, facts, and fun. got a really fun story. I hope we get to this today, about an 84-year-old grandmother who's trying to make the WNBA. Maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it it is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. We'll have that for you and much more later in the program. Let me hand out the phone number, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Of course, our listener line sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters. So you can call that number. Got some open phone lines right now. Grab a line. 888-914-9149. Of course, you can also email the program. Uh, You can send me your show ideas, questions, comments. Love to hear from you guys. And the address is kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app. Not currently on any other social media right now. Maybe I should be, but um, if you see an account that says it's me, it's probably fake. Uh, But the real one is on X at kale clark, C-A-L-E, clark with an E. Another way to get a hold of me. All right, let's let, let's let's talk about this today. Um, the first reading today at mass was from Jonah chapter three. I love the book of Jonah. I love and, and and Jim, producer Jim. I listened to a, a great podcast. He always does such a great job. Doctor John Bergsma, the great Doctor John Bergsma. Of course, he was your professor at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, right? I know you love him. Great guy, uh, you, oh, really. Okay. Uh, you're, you're, I was getting worried there because you didn't say anything. Perhaps. I'm still here. Like, yes, <laughs> you're still you're still upset over that F. You know, no, just kidding. No, no, but, no, uh, no, no, no. You did, you passed with flying colors. But absolutely. We've we've got to get Bergsma on the show, Jim. We we absolutely have to. He, the guy is amazing. I love his stuff. So, so the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology they they have these really short little podcasts on the mass readings called Letters from Home. It's really well done. So he was doing it today, and he was talking about this this first reading. And let me let me just give you it's it's not it's very short just a few lines from the book of Jonah. I want to share this with you. It said this. Let me just find it here. Here we go. And uh, it says, "The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, set out for the great city of Nineveh, and announced to it the message that I will tell you." So Jonah made ready and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's bidding. Now, Nineveh was an enormously large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began his journey through the city and had gone but a single day's walk. I mean, he didn't even get a third of the way through. 
announcing, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be destroyed. When the people of Nineveh believed God, they proclaimed a fast and all of them, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. Then he had this proclaimed throughout Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, neither man nor beast, neither cattle nor sheep, shall taste anything. They shall not eat. In other words, they're fasting big time. Nor shall they drink water. Man and beast shall be covered with sackcloth and call loudly to God. Every man shall turn from his evil way and from the violence he has in hand. Who knows? God may relent and forgive and withhold his blazing wrath so that we, will sh- so that we shall not perish. When God saw by their actions how they turned from their evil way, he repented of the evil that he had threatened to do to them. He did not carry it out. So we're going to talk about that in just a second. What, what does it mean when it says that God repented of the evil that he had threatened? To, how, how, is it possible for God to do evil? And the answer is no. Sorry, spoiler alert. But I'll tell you exactly how to understand this in just a second. But as Dr. Bergsma said, this is the shortest sermon of all time. This is the shortest homily ever. <laughs> I mean, this could, this could literally be a tweet. What Jonah said to the Ninevites. And what's funny about it is that he just says 40 days more and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. He doesn't even say anything about, hey, you've got a chance to repent. You can get out of this. Um, here's how you do it. He, he, he just says, it's over, guys. 40 days more and that is it. You're toast. <laughs> you know, fire from heaven is going to consume you kind of thing. And, and and you know what? Jonah really didn't want them to repent. And we'll, we'll talk about why in just a second. Jonah actually hated the Ninevites. He absolutely hated their guts. He does not want to give them any extra information that might help them. And so I'm sure he was as shocked as anybody that they all did repent, starting with, of course, the king himself. And this is where the proverbial sackcloth and ashes, we, we hear of this. This is a great example of people actually doing this. They're kind of wearing potato sacks, super uncomfortable sitting in ashes they're they're not on their you know uh corinthian leather couches i mean they're, they're just they're they're really roughing it not super fast no food or water even the animals are getting in on this and so this is this is shocking to to jonah he's not super happy about this i don't think he just he knows god is wants him to do this he does his duty and no more bare minimum here so let's talk about for a second just, just why the Ninevites were so um, awful. And, and by the way, Jonah kind of didn't like them for for really, really good reason. For really good reason. And yeah, well, we can talk about the fish a little bit as well in just, in just a second. Because that's what, when we talk about the book of Jonah, clearly, this is what most of us think about. We think about Sunday school stories. We think about uh, maybe mobiles we had hanging over our crib or children's books featuring Jonah and the whale. But there's much more to it than, than that. And by the way, when was this book written? We don't know for sure, but it's probably talking about events that happened in the 8th century before Christ. But, but Jonah itself as a book probably was composed somewhere between the 8th century and the end of the 3rd century. We did actually a, a little series on Jonah on the Faith Explained program as well. And I, I just love studying the book of Jonah. And Jonah, of course, initially 
did not want to heed God's call. He, he fought against him every way he possibly could. And Nineveh, by the way, you're wondering where this is in the modern-day world. It's, it's in modern-day Iraq, and the heart of what is known as Assyria. This is the Assyrian Empire, and, and these guys were absolutely the enemies of, of the Israelites. And he didn't want to go there. He tried to run away. He goes to Tarshish. Tarshish was probably in Spain, you know, maybe some of the, the Spanish islands. You know, he's like, you know what, I'm just going to do a beach vacation. I'm getting away from here. I'm going to go put my toes in the sand, grab a margarita, and, and I'm not going there. That, that, this is the last place I want to go, Nineveh. Ironically, ironically, uh, we're looking on the Faith Explained right now at St. Paul's letter to the Romans, and he wants to get to Spain. This is what he says at the end. He's like, I'm going to Rome, and then my, my end game is I want to get to Spain. I want to get to Tarshish. Maybe I want to get to the beach. You know, I, I can understand that. I've always felt my entire life, I can't shake this feeling. I've always, I've always been called to a beach ministry in San Diego or maybe in South Beach. I've just never been able to shake this call to a beach ministry. So that, that's, that's essentially what... That's essentially what uh, Jonah wanted to do. But eventually he does. Well, I'm skipping over a bit to get to what we're, what's, what's, uh, what's here in this text today. The whale, he gets spit up on the shore. And this is, by the way, Nineveh is a massive city. It takes three days to walk across it. It was surrounded by this huge wall that was eight miles long. Talking about building the wall, they did it. They did it, and that's what ancient cities had in the old days. They were they were fortifying walls around the cities because they were always invaders. But really, nobody really wanted to uh, mess with the Ninevites. They were really, really bad. And I'm going to tell you how bad they were. So if you have little ones nearby, if you know, there are lots of families listening, cover their ears, shuffle them out of the room just for a couple of seconds, because this I'm going to sanitize this as much as I can. But they were extremely cruel. So starting now, plug their ears. They would kill people. They would assault women. They would rip babies out of their mother's wombs. They would crush the heads of children against the rocks of their enemies. They would skin their victims alive. They would impale people. Uh, They would force parents to watch their children be burned alive. Then they murder the parents. They would bury their victims in the sand up to their necks, leave them there to die of exposure, hunger, thirst, uh, birds of prey, birds of carrion, all that stuff, wild animals. So entire cities, entire people groups, if they if they heard that the Ninevites were going to attack them, very often they would commit mass suicide rather than fight them because they, they knew that if they lost, it would be beyond unimaginable suffering. So these are the people that... Jonah is called to preach to. And you can see why. He doesn't want to go there. He hates their guts. He absolutely hates their guts. But he is called to give them this message. And I'm sure he was, like I said, absolutely shocked that they actually repented. And one of the big big themes in the book, obviously, is that the way God thinks is clearly not the way we think. Um, I talked about this today earlier on The Faith Explained. Somebody asked me a question about... Um, uh, the book of Isaiah, how God's word never comes back void. It always accomplishes the purpose, like the rain and the snow coming down. It's always going to accomplish the purpose of what he sent it there for, to water the earth. It doesn't come back void. But just before that little part in Isaiah, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Jonah would have wanted to smite these guys. Just drop a lightning bolt on them, please. Fry them, get it over with. They richly deserve it. 
but God is giving them even a chance to repent. This is the divine mercy on display here. And as one writer said, you know, most of us do like what God says until he calls us to action to really be a part of it. Whether it's loving our enemies, whether it's, it's preaching, going where we'd rather not go. That's exactly what Jonah, who was this very reluctant and prodigal prophet, had to do. So this is, you know, people get hung up about the fish, and we'll, we'll talk about this in just a, in just a minute. But there, there is a much, much deeper uh, issue at play here. By the way, Jonah's the only prophet who was actually sent to non-Israelites, sent to a, a different people group. And this is really a foreshadowing of the Catholic Church. It's a foreshadowing of the mission of St. Paul, preaching to the pagans, preaching to the Gentiles, and preaching to those who are different than you, that God loves them as well. And he wants them to get right with, with him, to be that kind of pontifex, if you will. And I, that's what You've heard the Pope being called pontifex before. Well, the word pontifex means bridge builder, kind of an agent of reconciliation, trying to bridge the gap from God to people. And really the cross is, the, is that bridge for sure, ultimately. But Jonah doesn't want to do this. Jo- Jonah wants, you know, as, the, as the late Tim Keller said, jo- Jonah wants a God of his own making who simply smites the bad people, blesses the good people, like me. People, Emma, who are the good people? Me <laughs> and everybody I know. But when the real God shows up, uh, this, this upsets his apple cart. It throws Jonah into despair. And he, he can't figure it out because he can't understand how a God, a just God, can also be merciful. How is this possible? And obviously... <laughs> Wait till you see the cross. There, there you see justice and mercy unite at, at that point where the horizontal and the vertical beams of the cross unite because you have the divine justice upon sin. Jesus takes it upon himself. We also have the mercy. This is what, what makes it possible for us to be forgiven. And so Jonah can't figure it out. How, how can God be merciful, forgiving to people who've done such evil? And... Um, Obviously, the, we need the rest of the story. Jonah doesn't have the full arc of salvation history. He only has what, what he knows, what he's aware of. And this, this is really why Jesus talks about, uh, in the gospel for today, the sign of Jonah. Because we, we now know, because of the New Testament, the, the rest of the story. And Jesus says, hey, this wicked and adulterous generation wants a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of of the prophet Jonah. But first I want to just answer this question really quickly about God repented, quote unquote, of the evil that he was going to do to the Ninevites and he did not do it. Well, as Bergsma explains, and he's a fine scholar, if you look at the original Hebrew, this is actually an expression. This is a Hebrew expression. It's kind of an idiom. And it doesn't mean what you might think it means. God repented of the evil. The, the, the word evil there is the Hebrew word ra which essentially means a bad thing, a punishment of sorts. And it doesn't mean that it's intrinsically evil. Obviously, God can't do anything that's intrinsically evil. God is good all the time. God is good, right? Like the song says. Now, it might be experienced as a bad thing by people who are on the receiving end, for sure, but, but it doesn't mean that it's, it's an absolute evil. 
It's just a punishment of sorts. It's a little bit like being a parent. Sometimes we, we have to punish our children, but it's kind of an act of love. And it's, it's experienced as a bad thing. It's experienced as a sort of evil, if you will, by, by the recipient. But it's like a parent maybe taking away a child. I'm going to take away your Nintendo Switch for a week. What? No, you can't do that, Dad. Um, that's, that's experienced as a bad, but it's really an act of love. It, it's a corrective discipline. So that's what's really going on here when it talks about the evil God was going to do. It wasn't evil, evil. It was, it was a, a just punishment that they richly deserved again. You, you heard what they were into. But, but there's a different Hebrew word that talks about actual wickedness, actual moral evil. And that's not the word ra, but it's actually a different word. It sounds like it. It's rasha, rasha. And that is the pure, unadulterated wickedness. And God is, as Bergsma said, it's, God is never described as doing rasha, this actual deed of wickedness. He never does that. He never does that. But he does sometimes dish out the raw, not the rasha, but the raw, which is just simply the consequences of people's wicked deeds. So anyways, these guys don't, they don't receive it because they, they actually repent. They actually repent. And, and, and God does not do what he had every right to do. And that just blows Jonah's mind. He, he cannot understand it. He can't get it. And it creates a lot of issues for him. It creates kind of a, a theological crisis for him. You're listening to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 Okay, let's just quickly look at the gospel here. Because we are, and again, we, we are so blessed to live in the times that we live in. And Bergsma kind of touched on this too. A lot of people say, wouldn't it be cool if we could live in the time of Jesus, if we could say, you know, walk the dusty roads of Galilee with him, um, literally follow in his footsteps and the prints of his sandals. Oh yeah, those would be great times. And I would totally believe Jesus and follow him. Not necessarily, not necessarily. Great chance we would have been one of the doubters too. And yet, what is this guy saying? You know, we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood or else you have, we have no life within us. That is madness. We could have been like those skepticals who are listening to him in the synagogue at Capernaum that day, which is narrated in John chapter 6, to look at him and say, well, he's more than a man. He is God incarnate. That takes great faith. And yes, I know, it, do, it does take great faith to also look at the Eucharist and say, mm, that's, not just a, that's not a piece of bread. This, this, this is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ under the appearances of bread and wine. But it's really him because he says so, and I, and I trust his word. But in, in today's gospel, Jesus obviously references Jonah. This is from Luke chapter 11. While still more people gathered in the crowd, Jesus said to them, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. At the judgment, the Queen of the South will rise with the men of this generation and she will condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And there is something greater than Solomon here. At the judgment, the men of Nineveh will arise with this generation and condemn it because of the preaching of Jonah, they repented and there is something greater than Jonah here. Now, what is this sign of Jonah? Obviously, it's the resurrection of Christ. And a big, big deal in the book of Jonah. And people, people 
argue till the cows come home about whether or not the fish is real, whether or not it's a historical story. Well, it certainly could be. Some people say that Jonah's kind of wisdom literature. The message is true, but it didn't really happen. But there's no reason to believe that it's impossible. There are a great many more miracles in the pages of Scripture. They're far more stupendous, if you will, than this. But But here's the deal. A lot of scholars actually think that Jonah actually did die in the belly of the whale, that he didn't just kind of hang out there. It's kind of like a cave, you know, and, hey, there's some extra, extra food floating around this fish's belly. I'm going to eat that. No, I mean, how could you possibly survive without oxygen, you know, all the, the, the stomach acids, you know? When it, a, a lot of scholars think Jonah flat out died. And when this sea creature spits him up onto the dry land, he's in a sense resurrected. He's given his life back from God. And this is a prefigurement. Whether he dies or not, it's still a prefigurement, of course, of the death and resurrection of Christ. Just as Jonah spent that time in the belly of the sea monster, Jesus spends that time in the heart of the earth, three days, three nights, in the heart of the earth, in the tomb. And then, of course, he's resurrected on, on Easter Sunday. We have great historical evidence for this. Also, by the way, just side note, the way it's put in the book of Jonah, there's no embellishment here. It just simply says it. Okay, this is what happened. There's no great um, supernatural element added to it. Um, it doesn't try to kind of, the writer doesn't try to dazzle us with, you know, insane, um, I don't know what, fireworks, if you will, literary fireworks. It just sort of says this is what happened. It's two verses. It's done. So don't, don't get too distracted by that. The main thing is what it points forward to, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. And he says, hey, the queen of the south will condemn you because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus is a far greater Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. Jesus is also the son of David, but he's far greater. Solomon was an exorcist. Jesus was a greater exorcist. Solomon was the man of wisdom. Christ is wisdom incarnate. And hey, something greater is here. So don't miss the message. Don't miss the chance to repent. And really, this is what we have to do this Lent. Don't miss this chance to repent because you have even less excuse than the people listening to Jesus because you not only have Jesus' teaching, you have 2,000 years of church theology teaching and the Eucharist available to you wherever you may be. So our excuses are even less. And that's kind of scary to think about. But we, we really need to get wise to this and get and get get with the program as we get through Lent here. We'll be right back on the Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. Questions, comments, welcome, 888-914-9149. Be right back with much more Faith, Facts, and Fun. The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program, 888-914-9149. Speaking of Jonah, which we were talking about in the first segment, if you missed it, grab the podcast on the Relevant Radio app. It should be up just a few minutes after the show ends. But another show that we have on Relevant Radio every Sunday at 8 a.m. Central, is Bishop Sheen. That's right, Archbishop Fulton Sheen. Life is worth living. In so many ways, 
we follow in the footsteps of the great Archbishop Sheen. Father Rocky is, in, in, in so many ways, a modern-day Fulton Sheen, reaching Christ through the media, or reaching the world for Christ, rather, through the media. Yeah, we're reaching out to Christ, too. we got to grab a hold of him for sure. But this is what Bishop Sheen said about Jonah. This is kind of funny. I was lecturing at the University of California last year, and at the end of the lecture I was asked questions, and one student said, how was Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days? I said, I haven't the vaguest idea. But when I get to heaven, I shall ask Jonah. He said, suppose Jonah isn't there. I said, then you ask him. (laughs) Oh, cold shot there. Um, By Bishop Sheen. Very, very funny. Uh, How charismatic was he? All right, well, let's carry on. You can call in right now, 888-914-9149. I do want to kind of finish off a little bit about what we were talking about yesterday. We were talking about whether or not the Gospels in the New Testament are based on eyewitness testimony. And if you missed yesterday's show, you can download the podcast on the relevant radio app. You can stream it, share it with a friend, or wherever you get your podcast. Please leave us a rating and review. helps people to find us so that we can continue our mission of bringing Christ to the world through the media. We talked about uh, the work of... uh, the fairly well-known YouTube public scholar, Dan McClellan, he questions whether or not the Gospels contain any eyewitness testimony. And it does kind of boggle my mind a little bit that he would say that, because like, let's look at the Gospel of Luke, for example. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he actually says, I'm depending on eyewitness testimony. And this is what he wrote in his prologue, if you will, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us. What's he saying? He's saying there are other gospels out there. There are other people who wrote about Jesus. And he may be referencing, of course, Mark. He says, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I, too, decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So this is Luke. He's telling, he's giving us the reason why he's writing. Now, he actually is dedicating this book, the Gospel of Luke, and he dedicates part two. The Acts of the Apostles is also written by St. Luke. Luke wrote like a quarter of the New Testament. He wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. We owe him a great debt. He wasn't one of the Twelve Apostles, but he was the traveling companion of St. Paul the Apostle on some of his missionary journeys. And so he actually had to research this himself, and he was a fine historian. In fact, historians, archaeologists, they actually use Luke's gospel to find stuff where stuff is buried because he always comes through again and again and again. And anyway, so he says, hey, I wanted to find out what happened from the eyewitnesses. I investigated. And there's a lot of stuff, of course, in Luke's gospel about Mary, about Our Lady, the visitation stuff, uh, everything about the Annunciation. It's not in the other gospels. A lot of people think that Luke interviewed Mary for his research. Imagine that. So she gave him all 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 the, the inside details here. So Talk about eyewitnesses, my goodness. So we have eyewitness tradition in Luke's gospel. And also, I think, too, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And you say, well, hang on here. Hang on. (laughs) 
what if Jesus' actual disciples were illiterate? Let's say they couldn't write anything down. Then how on earth are, is everybody else going to find out about this? How can we trust? Well, don't, don't forget that even though the Gospels themselves were not, at least two of them were not written by actual apostles, Luke, Mark, okay, Mark is Peter's interpreter and scribe. Those guys were clearly talking to the people who were in, who were um, actually involved in, in the events. So that's that's important. It do, it does it does rely on eyewitness testimony. And, and then people ask the question, well, what about if people's memories they they don't remember things rightly? Okay, if you saw Jesus raise somebody from the dead, I'm pretty sure you would remember that. Uh, things like that, very stupendous miracles. But we all know that we tend to forget things, um, especially as we get older. If we're stressed out, um, we can things can slip our mind. You know, anniversaries, birthdays, all that sort of stuff. And a lot of scholars recently have actually argued that the eyewitnesses in the first century were really, really reliable in what they said about the life and the career of Jesus. There's a scholar named uh, Professor Richard Balcom, and some years ago, I think it was 2006, he came out with a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Now, if you want a deep dive, if you want like a an academic book going into all the research on the fact that the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony, that's 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 where to start. That's where you should start. And so, he, he really points out the, the reliability of memory here, and and it doesn't mean that that the they got every single detail right, but they certainly got the gist of everything right. And it's a little bit like if you if you ask your grandparents, if they're still living, about what it was like growing up, they will be able to tell you what happened, the basic stuff, you know, walking the hill, walking the school uphill for 40 miles, all that sort of stuff. And they might embellish some things too. They might have a couple of extra details thrown in that aren't necessarily historical, but the gist of it you will get. And this is this is really important. And so here's some evidence from inside of the Gospels to show that what we have here was passed on with accuracy. One of the one of the best pieces of evidence is the names that appear in the New Testament in the Gospels. So Greg Manette asked this question in his book, The Wrong Jesus. He says, quote, if I were to ask you to write a book of historical fiction about the town that you currently live in from 100 years ago, do you think you'd be able to do it right? Do you think you'd be able to do it right? All right. What if I asked you to do the same thing, write a historical fiction novel about a town in another country? Do you think you'd get that right? Now, you might, if you, if you live in Chicago right now, you might be able to write a historical novel about Chicago in the 19th century, the 18th century, maybe even. And you might get a lot of this stuff right. But what if you wrote a novel about some small town in Scandinavia from the 1700s? Well, you'd have a hard time getting things right. Now, you could Google things, but it'd be really, really difficult. If you're, if you're talking about people who lived in this town in Scandinavia a century ago, you'd have a hard time getting people's names right because it's very, very local and it's exactly specific to the to the region. So when you when you look at the Gospels, they've done they've done research on uh, the names. There's a historian named Tal Ilan. In 2002, he published a book called "The Lexicon of Jewish Names in Late Antiquity," and he did all the research on 
what people's names were in Roman Palestine at the time of Jesus. And what's interesting is that at the same time when Jesus was living, there were there's a Jewish uh, community in Egypt, which is kind of right next door, but the names were all different because the Jews living in Egypt gave their kids different names than the parents did in Palestine, which is kind of interesting. So when you look at the 10 most popular names among Jews living in Roman Palestine around the time of Jesus, guess what they are? Let me ask you, Jim, what, what do you think the number one name is for, uh, for a boy when Jesus was growing up? I know I'm putting you on the spot, mm, Jim. I'm going to guess Jude. You know what? Let's see. Where is where is Jude? Uh, Judas is actually... And by the way, Jude is the same name as Judas. It's number four. Hey, there you so go. So not bad, not bad, not bad. So that was I'll the top... That was number four <laughs> of all the... Now, obviously, after a certain period of time, nobody was naming their kids Judas anymore for obvious reasons, but it was really, really popular. So the letter of Jude in the New Testament, his name is Judas as well, but he just call me Jude. Thanks. Um, what is the number one name? It's actually Simon or Simeon, Simon Peter. That's why, by the way, there's a couple of Simons in the, in the, in the list of the uh, 12 apostles. That's why they have to have a qualifier. It's Simon, son of Jonah, Simon, who is called Peter, as opposed to the other Simon, Simon, the zealot, right? So, um, he was, you know, from that party that wanted to start a war. Um, number two name was Joseph. Number three name was Lazarus. So how about that? Number four was Judas. Number five was John. Number six was Jesus. So what? Well, Jesus is simply Joshua in Hebrew. So there are a lot of young boys named Joshua. It means God saves. But that's why they get it with Jesus of Nazareth. So we know which one we're talking about here. Now, obviously, most people, although in certain cultures, of course, and um, in certain cultures, People still do name their children Jesus or Jesus, uh, but it's but it's out of respect, of course. It's a different different ball game. Um, so that, that's just there you go. Jesus was number six, number seven Ananias, number eight Jonathan, number nine Matthew or Matthias, number ten Manaean. But what's the, what's the number one female name? Take a guess. At the Ooh. time of Jesus, Ooh. that's a good oh, one. Patrick Alog has just guessed. I'm going to give it to him. Miriam, correct, there you go. correct. Miriam or Mary. And I mean, there's a lots, lots of Marys in the New Testament and the Gospels. Um, Mary, the wife of Clopas, you know, there's this other Mary. Then there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, of course. Number two, Salome. Uh, number three, Shal- uh, I'm going to get this wrong. Shalamzion. Wow, that's interesting. Shal- Shalamzion. Wow. Uh, Martha was number four. Joanna, number five. Number six, Sapphira. Number seven, Bernice. Number eight, Emma. Number nine, Mara. And number 10, Cyprus. That's interesting. Female name, Cyprus. But at any rate, these are exactly what you would expect when you read about the names in the New Testament. Um, The top names are are all there. So so why, why am I saying all this? Because this fits exactly with what you would think would happen if they were real if there was real eyewitness testimony behind the gospels the names are exactly right uh, according to what was going on in the first century all right just one more quick thing one more quick thing and we'll take a little break here and you can call in 888-914-9149 how much could jesus disciples actually remember this is an important question because don't forget the gospels were written 
within a generation of the life of Jesus, I think, again, the entire New Testament was done before 70 AD, but uh, even if we take these late, late dates that some scholars posit, uh, Mark being written in, say, the 60s, Matthew and Luke in the 70s, maybe John in the 90s, even if that are the case, people think, well, how can they remember stuff about what Jesus said and did decades later? Not a problem. Not a problem. There's a German scholar by the name of Armin Baum. He kind of dropped a bomb on the academic world because he said that it's not a big deal for Jesus' disciples to memorize all kinds of his teachings. Even in, even in the modern world, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but there are many Muslims who have memorized the entire Quran. Okay, so if they can do that today, then how, how much could um, learners of Jesus, what would they have been able to memorize? In the Gospel of Let's say, let's say Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you put those Gospels together, they're known as the Synoptic Gospels. There's about 30,000 words of stuff Jesus talked about, words and deeds, things that Jesus said and things that he did. Fifty. Now, if you take those 30,000 words, about 15,000 of that, about half, is stuff that he taught. Okay, words and deeds. So here, here's what he says. I'm going to quote uh, Armin Baum here. He says, quote, in the ancient Jewish world, it was not regarded as an extraordinary achievement to learn such a large number of words by heart. The rabbis knew their holy scriptures, which contained 300,000 words by heart, but they also learned the oral Torah. It has been proven experimentally that some Jewish scholars, get this, they had committed the Babylonian Talmud to memory word by word. It has two million words. There are some Jewish scholars who memorize the two million word Babylonian Talmud. Now, if they can do that, it's it's kind of child's play for the disciples of Jesus to memorize only fifteen thousand words, so and and commit those to memory. Plus, I mean, it was really really important who was teaching those words. They would have wanted to remember those words. It wasn't a modern society of distraction, the internet, social media, Nintendo switches. It, it, they weren't going home playing video games. They, they, were, they were learners, right? And, and there, there wasn't a whole lot of other things to do at some, at some level. It was a culture of memory and passing on tradition by word of mouth. So it's a, it's a big deal. So it, not a problem for them to remember this stuff and having those eyewitness memories of Jesus' words and deeds passed on. So I hope that's a little helpful. Just a little addition to stuff we didn't get to talk about last night. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. And we will be right back. Faith, facts, and fun. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Kale a call at 888-914-9149. Hey, welcome back to the show. It's time for a little bit of fun. 888-914-9149. You can also email me. The address is kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. And you can find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. Can open up an email now that was sent to us at the show. And it's from Joe, who is listening on the app. And uh, he's talking about Monday's show. We had uh, the great Chuck Swirsky, radio play by play, Chicago Bulls, on to talk about how he's living Lent on the road with the Bulls. He's in a different city every day or every couple of days. And we talked about the uh, debacle that was the NBA All-Star Game and much more on Monday's show. If you missed that, check the podcast. So Joe writes in, 
And he says, someone needs to tell Kale that basketball is a non-sport. Any quote-unquote sport that is 90% genetics, that is the percentage of people below six feet tall, 9% muscle memory, 1% strategy, tactics, and athleticism is officially a non-sport. Ask yourself two questions. How many NBA starters are under six feet tall? And number two, how tall are you? Um, I refuse to answer the second question. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. I don't have any insecurities like Tom Cruise. You know, I'm not, um, you know, uh, preventing my wife from wearing high heels or anything like he used to do with Nicole Kidman. Um, I, I, I think I told the story before. I did, I did, as every basketball player does, I did, I did fib about my height just a little bit. I have confessed this in, in the confessional. Um, when I was in, when I was playing college basketball, you have to sort of give them your information. So that when they announce the starting lineups, they'll say, you know, from, from so-and-so from Cole Harbor, Nova Scotia. Remember, Jimmy, you should pull out your, your Chicago Bulls intro for me that you did that time. Standing at six foot one. And then the announcer actually said, wait, he's not six foot one. I'd, I'd kind of slipped in those six foot one, but, um, I'm actually not, I'm slightly smaller than that. <laughs> And I'm getting shorter every every year I get older, uh, and he and he embarrassed me in front of all the girls and everything. He, he's not six foot one. It's Kale Clark. All right. So uh, you brought up a sad memory for me, Joe. Thanks for that. But anyway, so he continues on with his email. That's why basketball is watched on TV by well, no one. I disagree with that. But he says basketball killed cable. In order for cable TV to broadcast the NBA, cable companies had to raise subscription rates. When people found out why their cable bill was going so high, they cut the cord. I was one of them. Uh, it's not just with basketball. Um, another story for another day. Anyways, he says, here's how you can make it a real sport. Number one, push the goal five feet back out of bounds. Number two, lower the goal to seven feet. Now, that's not bad. I could actually dunk if that was the case. Number three, make the goal move randomly according to some crazy algorithm. That's That's not a good idea, Joe. He says, if you do these three things, you will level the genetic playing field, so to speak, make basketball subject to the chaos that you experience in other sports and not just a slam dunk. 211 to 186, and he's referencing the score to the All-Star game on Sunday. How exciting. By the way, I love, absolutely love your show. Keep on doing what you're doing, except cut out the basketball nonsense. Well, it's true, Joe. You, you can't teach height. That that's for sure, and it does give you an advantage. I always, I always say, if I was only seven feet tall, I'd be in the NBA. But I don't think that's necessarily true. Hey, Muggsy Bogues was only five foot three, and pretty decent career. Spud Webb was five six for the Atlanta Hawks, and he actually won the slam dunk contest. Obviously, his dunks weren't that impressive, but they look pretty impressive when you're that far off the ground. Let's put it that way. Uh, a lot more impressive than Victor Wembanyama dunking, who's you know, nearly eight feet tall. But another story for another day. But I do have a, a very heartwarming story for you, and it's kind of related to Joe's email. It is related to basketball. Really fun story in The Athletic about an 84-year-old grandma who is trying, you know, with a wink and a smile, to make the WNBA. Her name is Shirley Simpson, and Ben Pickman wrote about it earlier today in The Athletic. She's 84 years old. She's a mother of four, a grandmother of 14, a great-grandmother of 10. And she has been making waves on social media in her effort to try to become not only a WNBA player, but a WNBA all-star. And there's a series of videos on Instagram 
uh, kind of document her journey. And here's the first one. Check this out. This is day one of my journey from 84-year-old grandma to WNBA All-Star. The WNBA draft is only five months away, so it's time for me to lock in. Today I started off with a quick dynamic warm-up and then got straight into ball handling. Everything for me right now is about working on fundamentals and getting my touch back. I broke it down even more and did some crossovers without dribbling to get the footwork down. Next is the shooting portion of my workout. I start off by doing form shots without the ball to make sure my follow-through is on point. It took me a few shots to find the range, but once I did it, it was straight cash money. I've been a shooter my whole life. I stay strapped. After my on-court session, I hit the weight room to get a lower body lift in. I need to bulletproof my whole body and get stronger to survive in the WNBA. I finished off day one with a nice easy walk on the treadmill and a bicep pump, of course. Follow me on my journey to the WNBA. Let's get it. Don't laugh because I don't see any deal out here with me. Son of a gun. Okay, so that is the story of Shirley Simpson, who's 84 years old. And and by the way, if you see these videos, we'll put a link to the story in the show notes. She is in fantastic shape for 84 years old. And it's really inspiring to see somebody getting after it in the gym. And um, wow, I mean, it's, it's kind of a rebuke to us who struggle a little bit with exercising. Um, that can be a great mortification for us this land. Well, two of her grandchildren, uh, Parker, who's 25, and Hunter, who's 21, they're actually, um, they're kind of behind this a little bit because they've created this basketball accessory brand called Court Candy. So, you know, apparel, all that sort of stuff. So they, they've sh- been sharing grandma's videos on Instagram and TikTok. And of course, she's wearing all the all the gear. And uh, there's this whole series called Grandma to the WNBA. But as you heard in that one clip, she uses all these Gen Z phrases grandma does, like, you know, I'm strapped, um, Chef Curry cooking, you know. Um, it's it's pretty funny stuff. And obviously these guys are trying to bring some awareness to their brand, to their company. But it's also good for grandma, too, because she had a left knee replacement last March and she's kind of gotten back in the game, gotten back on the court. She last played basketball when she was in nursing school. She's a retired registered nurse from British Columbia, Canada. And that was 60 years ago. And she said her first workout back, quote, I was hopeless. I couldn't dribble, couldn't get it to the basket unless I was doing it granny style. Ever shot your free throws underhanded granny style? I remember Rick Barry used to do that. All-star, of course, in the 1970s in the NBA and ABA. But... Uh, this is amazing. Grandma's journey to the WNBA has uh, really got millions of people's attention. In fact, the first video, which we just played for you, got 2 million views on TikTok by itself. Um, so on all the other platforms, Instagram, there's been uh, tons of feedback as well. And hopefully it's inspiring to people to get back in the gym, get back in the game, just to get moving. And uh, one of the things Dr. Brian Donahue talked about when he was on the program recently is that, you know, we're, we're made to move. We've got to do something And even if that's just walking, even if that's just a little light exercise, uh, try to do just little things that you can. Uh, Park far away in the parking lot. Have a little bit of walk to the building. Take the stairs whenever you can. Of course, check with your doctor if you're, see if you're ready for serious exercise or even not so serious exercise. But um, I I just love this. I think this is awesome. This is awesome. Grandma's journey to the WNBA. Shirley Simpson. Really cool. And you can check out her Instagram page. It's called Easy Money Granny. <laughs> How about that? 
All right, this is the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Glad you're able to join us for this hour. Stay tuned. Trending with Timory is up next. She's got a special guest, Dave Duran, who has the brand new, again, Dave Duran Show on Relevant Radio on the weekends. I wonder if his favorite band is Duran Duran. I don't know. You can ask him. Call in. Jim Shaper produced. Patrick Aylock took your phone calls. Keep it locked here on Relevant Radio. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.